Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University. And today I'm speaking with Geoffrey Hattie, who's uh, been in the, how would you describe Geoffrey Hattie? 20th century Guru, basically, yes, basically selling 20th century furniture d- based around design. So, Jeffrey, your business is called Jeffrey Hattie 20th Century Design. Um, How do you it, what, when I first started, it was basically just 20th century design, but that was in 1984, and at that point, it made it was a point of difference. Um, But at some point I decided really that was just going to become not a point of difference and everyone was going to be doing it. So I realised that the only thing I had really to sell was myself. So I renamed it. Now we're officially called Geoffrey Hattie Applied Arts. Applied Arts. Geoffrey, you've been in the business since uh, 1984. Why was what was the decision to go on that trajectory? Well, basically, it's what it was my my interest was decorative arts always. While others around me were doing different things, I was always creating an interior in my home. Uh, so I saw that basically no one was doing twentieth century design. Um, it was back then there was no other shop doing what we did and it wasn't it was just a business decision I love all things I don't care really what time they come from but there was no 20th century design so I thought that was actually a good place to be. If you look at the year 1984 Jeffrey um, it would have been probably Memphis time that would have been uh, yes a yes strong so for, time. yeah for me it's really interesting after all this time to see people rediscovering Memphis or Memphis coming into its own as a collectible, um, which is really fascinating to me because at the moment people are starting to sort of look into collecting the 80s, which is difficult for me because basically I lived the 80s. Does that make it difficult when you live something like the 80s to actually say, well, I'm a bit over it? Or do you kind of think in in the passage of time that you can actually look back and say, no, they were really quite extraordinary pieces. I can see why they've resonated with a new audience. Well, it's interesting because I, I sort of look at the things that were happening and I was only experiencing what was happening in Melbourne. Um, if you look at it on a broader aspect of what's happening throughout the world, that's a different thing. But for me, I saw Built Modern, which was really at that time the only thing I was aware of who were doing cutting-edge things was and, Bilt Modern. And Bilt Modern were the three architects, uh, Roger Wood, Randall Marsh and Dale Jones-Evans, who Correct. now Woodmarsh architects. Uh, mm. So what was interesting about their work in the 80s? Because some of it was uh, in galleries and museums shortly after. What, what was interesting about Bilt Modern's work? Well, it was edgy in the sense that, you know, it was about these people were my contemporaries um, and they were doing things. This, this, you know, you, I wasn't aware of what had been happening in the 70s because I was still young. So for me, these are my contemporaries. So these are the people you were taking notice of. And they were doing some pretty interesting things. 
they had a show at Pinacotica of just their furniture, um, which was no one else had done. Like, it, it was a different way of looking at things. It was a different way of approaching architecture. Spring memory was fairly hard-edged. I mean, they were designing the Metro Club in Burke Street, Melbourne at the time, I think. And yeah, they, they did some really good, interesting things. And it was. It was really out there. Um, the show that they did at Pinacothica was terrific and it was quite amazing. And over the years, I mean, I still have a desk that they did. Um, and I'm really surprised that more people aren't, that, you know, the people who are now the people who are interested in collecting design, Australian design, have sort of stopped somewhere in the 60s, which is sort of weird for me because I think there were some really good things happening in the 80s and Built Modern should be really important. But no one's, I, I mean, I, I tried to sell a Built Modern desk not long ago at an auction and no one was interested. Yes. I mean, look, it, it is a bit tragic because I think people do follow trends. And look, we had the, uh, the post-war 1950s modernist trend, you know, probably through the 90s and into the early noughties. And it's interesting because I was just walking along the street, um, I think it was in the city yesterday, and someone just, just bought it. A modern Danish chair from the 50s, and he was kind of making it as if he just discovered it. So I kind of smiled because I thought, well, yes, but it's kind of, you know, that was kind of rediscovered several times. Um, but you always had your handle on things that are perhaps coming up. And I've always looked towards you, Jeffrey, as someone who really, you don't have a crystal ball, or as far as I know, you don't have a crystal ball. But, um, you've always been interested in. Well, in recent years, in that very early secession movement, the arts and crafts, uh, people like Joseph Hoffman, and and this is now starting to experience a revival. And I don't know if it's, well, it's obviously partly because of people like you, but also I think it, it's timely. Why are we looking at this furniture now? And who are some of the people that you would be collecting if you were? Well, good? you've got to remember, so for me, a lot of that uh, post-war was sort of old hat when I started. That's why it was far more exciting to be looking at Built Modern. Um, but when you became, become interested in design, well, then you become interested in, in history and understanding why and how things happened. So when you're talking about design in the 20th century, you're talking about that time that time at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th and 20th century. So you're trying to find the beginning of modernism. And if you're looking at the beginning of modernism, you can't go past Joseph Hoffman and the Werner Werkstatt because they, you've got to remember this is 19, you know, at the very late 1900s, starting into two, 1905, 1904. These are really early times to be doing the sort of things that they were doing. And it's really radical thinking when you think about what it was coming from out of the 19th century. So that's why it's fascinating. When, when was your first, perhaps, uh, purchase of something from the secession period or something from Hoffman that kind of made you even more eager to start? 
collecting from that, or not collecting because you're obviously selling, but looking at pieces from that period. What was something that really triggered that for you? The thing is that we're in a really unique place in Melbourne in the sense what was really different, what was really was interesting to me as I began, one of the things that I noticed well, was the Jewish community had this wonderful history of being supporters of the avant-garde. Now, that was really uniquely to Melbourne. It didn't happen in Sydney. It only happened in Melbourne because we had a different Jewish diaspora. So I used to go to houses that were had full workstat sort of interiors and I became fascinated by that. That's so I've been fascinated from the very beginning sort of and I've always bought it, I've always desired it and I love it. Um, so, yes, that was how it all started because here in Melbourne we have a very unique position of having some people here whole families had bought interiors from that period of Vienna. So it's very interesting. Well, when you look, obviously, part of the pleasure for you, Jeffrey, is, uh, you know, you make that call, someone says to you, look, I've got um, Joseph Hoffman suites from the early 20th century. Before you even see, visit, make that visit, you know, book in the time in your diary, what do you feel? Well, I mean, if somebody says anything to me like that, I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Um, you know, I've always done this because I love to look at things. I've never done this about, it's never been about the money. It's always been about the ideas. And so to discover things and to sort of move through things and start to understand things is an enjoyment for me. I never sort of buy things for what they look like. Well, I do, of course I do. I make an aesthetic decision, whether it's a good example or a bad example. But that can be based on a good example and a bad example can be based on the ideas involved. So it could be, say, for example, Hoffman. Now, Joseph Hoffman, I've learned only of late, is that really if you're collecting Hoffman, you've got to collect pre-war, pre-First World War, because that's when he was really relevant to modernism. After that, things changed. The Werner Werkstatt changed. It changed direction. It wasn't so important in the design thing. But when you're talking pre-First World War and Hoffman's doing all this amazing geometry, it's amazing. And that's when it's really edgy. And, I mean, these prices now for Hoffman are really quite staggering. I mean, mm. uh, you know, you, you don't have to give me a blow-by-blow -blow price this, but you know, what are you looking at now for a Hoffman? I mean, a Hoffman chair can be what twenty thousand, thirty thousand. Well, you you run into all sorts of problems about what what is Hoffman. That's that's becomes an, another academic issue. So, what I just mentioned then. First of all, it has to be, if possible, pre-war, pre-first world war. Then you get things like. A lot of things are attributed to Hoffman now that aren't necessarily, well, they may have been inspired by Hoffman, and, but they're not. So I, I just recently bought a little wire, no, sort of what they call sort of like a little sort of mesh whatnot, and I bought it from someone in America, and I took a punt on it because it is so Hoffman, and it's done in Germany in the 30s. But when I got it here, I realised, no, this is actually inspired by Hoffman. It isn't Hoffman. 
It's inspired. It's in the school of, and it was done in Germany in the 30s, but it doesn't get a cigar. So how, how do people, if they're buying Hoffman, is there his signature with every piece or is it some pieces are signed, some pieces aren't signed? How do you know if it's the real deal? Generally, they're signed. With, without fail, they'll be signed. The Vernivex, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing. It's sort of a very Germanic sort of thing in the sense that they, everything was documented and signed. Um, it's interesting. But generally speaking, if it doesn't have a Verkstatt mark, um, then, you know, it's, you, you, then you're fighting an uphill battle. Like, for example, I've got a, a Hoffman bookcase in my gallery at the moment. Now, it's stylistically, it's right. Its only signature is a signature on the lock case. But it's signed, Werner Verkstatt. And on the lock case, like that's the internal lock itself. That's where it's been signed. You would never find it and it would never be obvious to you. But I was shown it by, when I bought it that it's Hoffman. This is, here's the mark here on the lock. If you have to ask you, why are we looking at Hoffman now? Why do you think it's experiencing a revival the early 20s, the early, uh, you know, 19, 1900s? Late, late twentieth century. Why is it experienced a revival? Is it people looking for that sense of craft, or just oh, I over think, that post-war modernist thing that you know? No, that, I think it's all the same. I mean, you know, it's still it's it's no more expensive than say a piece of Prouvé um, or a Jean Rayet. It there's just a marketplace, and the marketplace at the moment for Hoffman is good. But I'm sure in 10 years' time, it may have gone nowhere. In the sense, it'll still always be worth money. It's always been worth money right from 1984 right up to now. It's of a, it seems to be because it is, for that very reason I stated before, because Hoffman is at the very forefront of modernism. When we're talking about design, and if people want to talk about design, here he is in, you know, 1905, doing, you know, geometrics. Um, it's terrific. And, and I that's think, hence the value. I think people, you know, for people who don't realise, but that change in direction from the very ornate uh, mm. Art Nouveau period in the mm. 1890s yep. to this very modernist geometric treatment was a mm. very radical shift. Very well, it's, well it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a response and it sort of started first in England at the same time, you've got to remember that Hoffman was contemporarily with people like Dresser in England. They're all sort of responding to the machine age where things were starting to be over-decorated and machine-made. So it starts with arts and crafts in 1890s, 1880s. You get aesthetics movement, which is the beginning and the precursor to this idea of getting back to craft. That's where this starts. Jeffrey, I was also going to ask you that uh, your interest in uh, this period really coincided with the National Gallery of Victoria holding a major exhibition curated by Terence Lane at the time. And when you went through it, they had the Gullier Suites from mm. Vienna. When you saw it for the first time, that must have really jolted you into a different... Well, that's, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying before. Um, the Gallia Suite was a complete interior that was in Australia, 
that had come by a ship, but a complete interior done by the Werner Werkstatt, but it was here in Australia. I mean, the Werner Werkstatt's are very rare even in Europe, but here we did, here in Melbourne, well, the NGV ended up with it. It was actually in Sydney first where the, the collection was, but the NGV had the brave foresight to buy it whole. And, you, and that was quite remarkable. And, yes, that was in the late 80s when they had that show, and that just really always made me a big fan of the Werner Werkstatt, and I've always loved it and I've always collected it. Um, but that was here in Australia. And there was it, a whole house full. Geoffrey, what's so lovely about going in your, into your gallery um, in Cremorne uh, in Melbourne is that it is so varied. I mean, you can see... You know, it really is an education of great 20th century design. But who, who do you think people should look at at the moment that you think people aren't, you know, they mightn't be on the radar as much as Hoffman, but they're kind of coming up in the wings. And, you know, if, if, you, leave, if you leave it for too much longer, you might miss out. Well, my thing is always I'm sort of looking at, say, Memphis, for example, as you mentioned before. Now, Memphis to me, because I was at the time... It's fairly like Disneyland. It was the it you. I'd be looking at place things like Super Studio, things in the sort of seventies, which is the beginning of Memphis. Memphis is sort of like the. It's basically when when the whole movement sort of got a bit mainstream. So if I was going to be buying things, I look at buying things from Super Studio and all of the sort of. You know, Sotsas is is very hot at the moment. But if you sort of anything that Sotsas was associated with before Memphis is of interest to me. Um, so, you know, that's what I would be looking at because I think it's really that, you know, Memphis is really easy and obvious for people because it's sort of slightly cartoon-esque. But there's a precursor to that, which is done in the 70s, which I think is far more interesting than Memphis. And also there are people got to remember that Memphis is still being made today. So you've got to be very careful. But it seems to be the obvious thing. So people are really interested in it. It's obvious. It's easy to consume. It's sort of showy. But if you want to get involved in design, then there's a history involved with where, how did Memphis, where did, how did Memphis come? And where did it come from? And that's what you're looking for. Um, you know, for me, personally, I'm looking at sort of things in the aesthetics movement in 1890s is of interest to me because, to me, it's really quite fascinating because it's really at the beginning, but you very rarely see it. So who, in part of this aesthetic movement, who are mm. uh, people that you should watch out for in that period? Well, the obvious one is Christopher Dresser. And, I mean, Christopher Dresser was the first modernist. Um, and he was English. And I always say to people, look, the English could never do modernism because they, because the central part of, of modernism was the concept of a one-class society. And certain countries in Europe could embrace modernism better than others. Um, there was just more in their DNA to sort of be able to sort of do that sort of thing of modernism. And the English never sort of did it in the 20s and 30s. But Christopher Dresser did it in the, you know, 1890s and if you see Christopher Dresser's stuff it's fabulous but you just don't see it it's just very very rare so have you, have you got anything in your collection by Dresser? No, 
No, I mean, I think I probably have over the years had dresser things, but very rare. I mean, to get a really, I mean, I bought a beautiful candlestick in Vienna once and I, th- I was convinced it was dated 1895 London and it's so Christopher Dresser, it's not funny, but I bought it, so it isn't Christopher Dresser. Um, if it had been Christopher Dresser, it would have been worth a small fortune. Um, but I love it because it is 1895 London silver candlestick in the most pared-back modernist manner. You would just assume it's, it's I, well, I did assume. I thought I'd found the, you know, the Holy Grail, but I hadn't. Now, Jeffrey, there is a trend at the moment. People are buying, going back to the past for inspiration mm-hmm. and they're mixing pieces with contemporary furniture. That seems to be where things are going. Um, do, do you feel that that's going to get stronger and, you know, what should people be looking for if, if they were starting a collection or starting to get interested in this period? What, 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 well, I always say to people, the most important thing is to have a real love of looking. And it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the fun is the looking and learning. To me, that's the fun part. I mean, if, you, if you're doing it for any other reason other than... So, therefore, when you're teaching yourself how to see things and whether something's good or bad or indifferent, every time you go into a shop, it's exciting. I mean, this morning I've just been into a junk shop and I bought yes. a hammer, you know, because <laughs> I love that hammer. It's the most beautiful hammer I've ever seen. What makes and, it so beautiful, Jeffrey? Oh, I don't know. Is it the shape or is it the materials? It's the materials and where you think it's come from. It's the most beautiful head and then someone's, so they've replaced the handle with just another piece of wood. So it all becomes quite geometric and very square. See, I love all of that stuff when people build things that are through necessity. Um, And I've got a bit of a thing for primitive furniture. Um, When people just make things and they'll make it beautifully because they want to and they make an attempt to make something good. So this just worked out to be a really beautiful hammer. I'll hang it on a wall as a sculpture because I think it has sculptural aspects. But that's because I love looking. You know, that's is it, is all that matters. Do you feel at the moment that, you know, with the internet and the ability to just purchase things and stuff, uh, there's been uh, that, that lack of looking properly or clearly? And- oh, I think there's a real dumbing down. I think basically... What what's happening now is people have no cognitive ability to make a decision because they don't learn how to know whether something's well made or whether it's good or bad or indifferent. What the system has wants us to do is just consume. So that the act of the consumption is the satisfaction, not the object itself. So people buy things online, they arrive. That's what they've done. The object is of relevance to them. And basically, if they've put no money into it, then they've paid no soul into it and made no soul in the sense of not made an aesthetic decision. Well, then they just throw it away because they've got nothing invested in it. Got no money, got no time. It's just stuff. Mm. And, you know, for me, I think that, you know, the human integrity is gone because in the past a, some, a firm would make something with the idea that it's meant to last and the client's going to buy it and they have a, re- a responsibility to the consumer for that to be of 
of value to them, like where they've spent the money and they've used it, it's lasted, and they've got their value out of it. That was the that was the the integrity of it. That no longer exists. They don't feel that they have to do anything for the client other than produce it for them as cheaply as possible. So it's kind of going back to the time of uh, Hoffman where these beautifully handcrafted pieces were made or they were commissioned by Mm. the clients for the Mm. home. They were specifically Mm. designed for the home, whether it was a grand apartment in Vienna or Germany, and they were there for a lifetime. They were actually... Oh, yeah, yeah. They wasn't just to to move on when the next fad came in. So that that resonates more. No, it does for me. I just think that that's always the thing of, of, of something that's been properly made and beautifully made is that it's there, meant to have it forever. You know, I mean, I don't mean ever as in, you know, you can't get rid of it. But if you own it and there's something you, in, of you in it, then, you know, I don't, I don't walk around my house and look at everything every day and go, oh, that's beautiful. But every now and again, I walk past something that I own and go, I remembered where I got it, why I bought it, and I enjoy that. I so think it's also, Jeffrey. I mean, it's like the $5 hammer this morning. I love that hammer. It's $5. But I got to that hammer because of a journey of looking. Well, I think, you put, you, I think you put the nail in the, in the piece of wood with the hammer in that um, you actually are one of the few who actually, I think there's a few of us out there, but I think it's the research as well that, you know, when you find out the backstory to some of these people, where the furniture came from, where it originated from, whether it's Hoffman or whether it's a hammer, I think you actually, there's that lovely connection to the object that will stay with you for, you know, well after something's fashionable. It's about ideas and, 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 and basically thinking. And, but more of it is learning to look, learning to know what something is and you can only do that by constantly looking and, and trying to make it. And well, and reading, of course. Yes. But you won't know anything unless you know, unless you learn to see and learn to open your eyes and see things. It's the same in everything. It's the same as art. Everything is about the ability to appreciate the quality of something, the ideas behind it, the history. The history and all of that comes once you've decided that you like it. Then you might research it. But, and then you know, it might I'll, actually I'll, might lead you to collect something else from the same designer. Oh, look, you know, so many people that I know who have been buyers sort of end up just wanting to collect, find something that they want to collect because it's cheap and in a sense that they'll see it in junk shops and you can buy it because you'll see it all the time. Um, I'll post the picture of the hammer on Instagram for you soon so you can see it um, oh, once I've cleaned it. Um, but... You know, that's, that's the sort of thing that, you know, I love doing. Is love The whole enjoyment, I was with a friend this morning, we both loved this huge big old sort of junk shop full of stuff and it was, I had to come back, and, back home to do this, otherwise I'd probably still be wandering about trying to find, you know, because this morning we found a tool and I said, what is that? And we both looked and thought, don't know. What do you use that for? I think the thing is the difference between you and the average person entering a junk shop is that you will go straight to the piece, the the item that actually has value, whether it's historical or whether it's monetary value 
or historical value, you'll hone in on that piece while others will walk into that shop and go, this is a pile of junk. And well, that's, that, but, see, but that's because I've had a life of looking and I enjoy that. So if you don't, and I don't mean that everyone has to do that. I mean, I understand the world visually. Um, other people might understand it spiritually. Um, it's my way is not the right way. It's just my way. So, you know, there's lots of ways to understand the world. Some people understand it financially. Some people understand it spiritually. I understand the world by looking. Well, look, Jeffrey, continue to look. Uh, I think um, uh, you really have been an important part of the design scene now for since 1984. And really what I found interesting about what you do is you kind of onto things well before people even start thinking about things. And, but it is, as you said, it's the love of history and, and, and putting things in front of us that perhaps we don't know about. So, look, continue looking, Jeffrey. I'd be very upset if you stopped looking. And whether you buy a Hoffman in your next purchase or it's a hammer, it's, it's always a pleasure Hoff- to hear, hear about what you're... Yeah, I mean, it could be a $50,000 piece of Hoffman or a $5 hammer. It doesn't worry to me. It's still a joy. Well, look... Uh, keep looking, Jeffrey. Um, those who want to know more about Jeffrey Hattie can uh, visit his Cremorne showroom. It's a Jeffrey Hattie Applied Arts in Cremorne. Um, but look, thanks so much for being on the show today, Jeffrey. I know you're busy, and um, but really, it's always a treat to hear you talk about furniture and design. So thanks so much. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.